Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. And as they head there, I'd invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open to James chapter 5. That's where we're going to be spending today. Um, One of the things that you received when you came in was um, in your little welcome uh, packets, the connection guide that you can write prayers on. We encourage you to do that. And uh, this 752, this is a prayer initiative we're doing with families. We're still doing it. So if you started strong and have waned over time, you can renew your effort. We're not done with our, uh, our prayer initiative yet. To be honest, I don't know when we're going to be done with the prayer initiative. This was supposed to go into Palm Sunday, and um, as I just study and if we've talked as a staff, I just don't think we're done with it. So good, thing, good news, the Bible's got a lot to say about prayer, so we're going to keep uh, pushing in on that, but uh, that you're praying for your family seven days a week. I heard from someone uh, uh, this week that told me they do it when they brush their teeth. It's something they do twice a day. So they just, while they're brushing their teeth, they're praying for their family or they're praying for their spouse. It's a good way for you to habit stack things together. Um, we want to pray together as a family. Just when you sit down for, for, for your meal, maybe, or at bedtime, but before your like normal prayer blessing at bedtime or before you just kind of run through your thanking God for the food kind of part, Just take an extra 60 seconds and pray together as a family. Maybe have someone else lead that prayer. And then uh, twice a week, pray with your spouse. If you're not married, maybe a close friend. Um, Pray together for the things that God's doing in your heart, around you, what he's burdened your heart for. And um, we want to become a people of prayer. Amen. Amen. This is us saying, yes, this is us saying, this is us saying, Lord, we want to be a people of prayer. And um, as my dad used to say, um, he's going to make us a people of prayer, either through sandpaper or through chainsaws. Sandpaper, slowly, a little bit at a time, little here and there, or chainsaws, he's going to allow severe pain to come in our life that brings us back to him. And I believe that. So we, we certainly want to become people of prayer. Let's pray right now. Let me pray aloud as you pray silently, as you steal your heart before the Lord. We just sang this song with all of God's name. Adonai, translated Lord in our by Elohim, that's the creator God. Yahweh, his personal covenant name with us. Maybe you would just Ask that God who's so powerful that he would create everything, but so personal that he knows the number of hairs on your head. Would you just ask him to speak to you this morning? 
we ask that you would really show up in a big way in our hearts and lives today. We seek your face. We want to see where you're moving. We want to see where you're at work. We're knocking on that very door, asking you to move. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think our current plan is two more weeks on prayer, and then we're going to go to First Peter. But who knows? We could we could just ride this train to the summer. I don't I don't know what we're doing. Um, James chapter five. This is one of those sermons that I rewrote several times and bounced around different places. Landed here. This is such an incredible passage on prayer. Real honest confession. I'm learning a lot about prayer, and there's something about prayer that is still so mysterious to me that somehow God limits some of his acting, some of his releasing power from heaven to earth. He limits it. He makes it conditional upon our very praying. That's what James says even in the text. There are things that God wanted to give you that you don't have because you didn't ask him. He even gives us an example of Elisha, who partnered with God on this very idea that some things God withholds from heaven, conditional upon our prayers to pray them. And James says so much on prayer. When I start with this quote, Paul Miller, when Jesus describes the intimacy he wants with us, I've shared this with you before, but I love this because it talks about the heart of the Father. He talks about joining us for dinner. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Many people struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on praying and not on God. Conversation is only the vehicle through which we experience one another. Consequently, prayer is not at the center. Getting to know a person, God, is at the center. And we've spent a few weeks now learning about the heart of the Father, who's on the other side of this prayer that we're praying. We've talked about his character and who he is. Because how we pray has less to do, again, with our technique and more to do with who we think is listening. So today I want to talk about prayer under kind of three headings, that we would have hearts of prayer. This is a praying life, also the name of Miller's book. We would have hearts of prayer, that we would be a house of prayer. This is what Jesus said, that we're to be a house of prayer, and that we would have homes of prayer, a praying life, a praying church, and a praying family. First, hearts of prayer. Maybe a better heading would be habits of prayer. James says this in verse 16, if you look right there in the text, in chapter 5 and verse 16, kind of the halfway through the verse, the ESV reads, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. The prayer of a righteous person, great power as it's working. Now, I I learned this passage in the King James. Forgive me if you maybe know. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Availeth much. Just kind of has a great ring to it, doesn't it? This, This phrase effectually fervent is really one word in the Greek. It's the word energo, which 
is really a cousin to our word energy. Generally speaking, it conveys this idea of energizing prayer. The energized prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much or has great power as it's working or gets a lot done. Similar to an electrical current that brings energy to a circuit, when applied to this passage, it it suggests that this type of prayer is passionate and heartfelt and heated and persistent. Many of the very parables Jesus told us about prayer. The Amplified Bible translates it this way, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. It's dynamic and it's working. Now James has learned this lesson. James was part of the group in Acts that saw the power of God at work through their very praying. If you remember Peter being captured and the church praying for Peter's deliverance, James was likely in that room as they are laboring in prayer for Peter. James would have been there as he saw Gentiles come to faith as the gospel spread. So James has first-hand experience here, and it's also why nearly every chapter of this little book of of James' letter to, to, to the church talks about prayer. He says in chapter 1, if any of us lacks wisdom, he should ask God. That's praying. In chapter 4, he reminds us, you have not because you ask not. And many times you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly or with the wrong motives. In the text that Sam read a minute ago, seven times the word prayer is mentioned just in this little passage. So much to say here. Let's, let's look at it in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Says as imperative, or maybe your translation says he must pray. If anyone's suffering, now suffering here means any kind of pain, anything that hurts. Emotional hurt or mental anguish or physical pain. Maybe it's relational strain, any kind of suffering, any kind of difficulty, even kind of grieving. Let anyone, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. He must pray. See, pain is always an invitation to pray. And you might say, well, pastor, I'm hurting all the time. Then pray all the time. One of the reasons God sometimes allows pain to linger in our life is because it draws us closer to him. And we want to change the conditions, and so we pray, but God wants to change our character, and so God allows it to remain. Even the illustration I used last week with the Apostle Paul praying that this tormentor of Satan would be removed from his life and doesn't tell us what it is. Maybe many people thought it was his his bad eyesight. He writes 
some of the letters closed as I'm looking at this writing with my large, in my large letters. He couldn't read really well. He'd been snake bitten. He, so much had happened to Paul. Who knows what it was? But God said, no, 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 I'm not going to remove that, Paul, because my grace is sufficient. And the weaker you feel, the more you're going to depend on me and the stronger that I'm going to be operating in your life. Sometimes God allows pain. He doesn't cause it, but he allows pain in our life to linger to draw us closer to himself. If there's anyone among you suffering, then we should pray. If anyone is cheerful, he goes on in verse 13, let him sing praise. King James here says, if anyone is cheerful or merry or excited or even happy, the word here literally means that something has caused us to be noticeably happy and optimistic. And in those two phrases, James sums up everyone in the room. Some of us in here are suffering. And for those suffering, James encourages us, you should pray about it. And those of us in this room who aren't suffering, you're just having a good day. It's easy like Sunday morning, which is a really terrible song because Sunday mornings are never easy. But you're just living the good life. You're just on the other side of the payday. You just got good news about your taxes. You just got a good report from the doctor. You got... You, you got the, the date you're going to the beach on the calendar. You're looking forward to it. He sums up the whole room. If you're suffering, you should pray. And if you're not suffering, but instead you're cheerful, you're having just a great day and a great season and a great day, then you should sing praise. You should basically sing your prayers. If you're cheerful, you're to sing praises. This is the word, the very word we get the word psalms from. Praise is a form of prayer. It's it's prayer with rhythm. It's prayer with a melody. The point he's making here in comparing these two things is the way that we respond to the bad is, 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 is not self-pity and to, and to be dismal, but we should pray. And then on the other side, if your life's going good, it's not time to pat yourself on the back and take pride in your situation. You should sing praise because God is the source of every good thing. So if you're suffering, pray. And if you're cheerful, praise. If you're in pain, pray. If your hearts are happy, praise. So you're either one or the other. This is the hearts of prayer. This is what James says. This is, this is how we should be living. There is no disconnect in Scripture of a Christian and prayer. It is the natural rhythm of things. I, I don't drop my kids off to school and say, um, breathe without ceasing. I don't have to tell them that because they naturally are going to breathe. Neither should we have to be reminded as Christians to pray without ceasing because our entire identity and purpose in life and joy and contentment and everything is tied to a relationship with a father who loves us. So we shouldn't have to be exhorted to pray. It should be the natural overflow of just the rhythm of what we do, like breathing for a Christian, is talking to the Father about it. If you're hurting, talk to the Father about it. If you're excited, you should talk to the Father about it. We should have hearts of prayer. 
Next, we should be a house of prayer. He goes on in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Is anyone suffering? Pray. If anyone's cheerful, you should praise. If anyone is sick, you should call some leaders of the church and let them pray. This word translated sick is literally weary. If you're weary. It doesn't necessarily mean physical sickness, although it certainly could, but it's the result of the sickness. It's the lady with the issue of blood who had been suffering with this for a very long time and in desperation reaches out to touch Jesus. It wasn't necessarily because she was sick she reached out. She was weary of being sick. It's the weariness. Sometimes we just get weary. Maybe you've said this lately. I'm just so tired maybe you're tired you're weary of your job you're weary of your boss you're weary of the relationship you're in maybe you have some kind of lingering sickness and it has caused you to be weary this is the word sick weariness like a boy would say to his brother i'm i'm sick of you or that you might say of this situation, after it's rained three weeks in a row, I'm so sick and tired of the rain. I'm weary of it. This is the word used. Anyone who is weary, who is weighed down, who is tired, who so weary that you reach the point that maybe you can't even pray about it. You've talked to the Lord about it a thousand times, 10,000 times. You've cried all the tears that you can cry about it. You've been so burdened and overwhelmed, and God has still not moved as you are hoping and praying that he moved. And so, at some point, even the best Christians just get, just get weary. In 2 Corinthians 1, this is not just reserved for immature Christians. The Apostle Paul himself said he was ready to give up on life. He's weary. What happens when you get weary is it becomes difficult to pray and you get so weary that you don't even feel like praying. You're just so overwhelmed with discouragement, so weary at the point that you need more than you. And when you get there, James says, oh, this is a perfect solution. Call the family of God. Reach out to your spiritual family. Call the leaders of the church. It says here the elders of the church, the spiritual leaders of the church. We get notes like this all the time. Even on your card, it's very appropriate for you to just write that. I am so tired and weary. Will you pray for me? And it's a great privilege of our staff. We're going to gather tomorrow, and we're going to huddle up, and we are going to intercede for many in this family and many that are watching online and many reports that come in and needs of prayer, and we're going to intercede with you. Any of you, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. See in verse 13, if you're, if you're suffering, you're the one praying. And if you're cheerful, you're the one praising. But here in verse 14, it makes a switch. Now it's not you praying for you, it's others that are praying for you. 
It reminds me of the lame man and his four friends we talked about a couple weeks ago. How he was so weary, he was so helpless, he could not do anything. It was the faith of his four friends that took him to Jesus. What a beautiful picture. Or in Acts 13 of the, of the early church praying for Peter. They are laboring for prayer in prayer for Peter. If anyone is sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This anointing with oil, we don't do a lot of that maybe in our tradition. Some of you here, you're, you're, you're Holy Ghost rollers. I know, I know you. You got the oil in your purse. You are, you, I'm serious. I mean, that's not special oil. It's just cooking oil, but you're ready with it, right? Some of you even go to the next level. You buy oil from the olive groves in Jerusalem. Like you're like, I don't think it's going to help any extra, but it does smell better. It doesn't smell like French fries. You are, you're ready. Oil in this time had medicinal purposes, absolutely. Oil was used to clean a wound. It was used to comfort or relax, as we might use massage oil today. Some of you are part of that essential oil club, right? You're ready. You got a pharmacy in your purse or in your pocket. Need a little peppermint? I got a little peppermint oil for you. Sometimes oil is used as the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why they would anoint the kings with oil. It identifies that the power of the Holy Spirit that has the power to physically heal if it accomplishes the will of God. So if you invite me to a hospital to pray for you or a loved one, I'm bringing the oil with me. As a signal that I don't have any power, the Holy Spirit's got all the power. God, if, if you want to heal this person... I want you to do it. I had a friend, I th think I told you the story, I had a, a friend that called me and said, hey, I need you to go pray for, for a good buddy of mine. He's in, he's in Shreveport, and they were out of town, South Louisiana, so I went over to the ho hospital room, and I think maybe Jason went with me. We go in that hospital room, this guy's not a believer, and I just said, well, listen, I'm a man of faith, and I want to pray. Would it be okay with you if I prayed? This guy had a week or two before he was put on hospice, it was a dire situation, and he said, no, I don't want you to pray. It's not going to help. And his wife, through her tears on the couch, said, he might, might not believe, but I believe. Would you pray? He had to go stand over by the door and hold hands. Sometimes oil is... Not even a physical thing at all, like in Psalms 23, where the psalmist says, He anoints my head with oil. Oil no more heals you than water in a baptistry saves you. It's just a symbol. And so James here is saying a couple things. One, that to anoint someone with oil, to call the elders to come and pray and anoint with oil, is to minister to them at their point of need. Sometimes the oil is to provide encouragement, and sometimes it's to throw them in the car and take them to the doctor. Sometimes the oil is extended counseling, and sometimes it's just reminding them of God's promises, that God's with them. Quick caveat, though, this ministry of praying for people and even praying for people with oil, here he says, call the elders or the leaders of the church, but 
It's not reserved just for the elders. The Apostle Paul reminds us to do this very thing, that we're to bear one another's burdens. Every one of you in this room can be an oil provider for someone else. You can pray. You can help. You can encourage. You can provide a meal. You can meet practical needs. You can meet mental and emotional needs. You can encourage them. I think that's the one that we miss out on the most. We're all fighting this great battle. And many times we put on the smiley face and we do all the things, but we are just so discouraged. And we need someone just to lift up our very soul to encourage us. Church, we're to be a house of prayer. This is the very definition that Jesus brought. He busts up into the temple not just on once, but multiple occasions. He turns over the tables, takes time to make a whip. He's Indiana Jones in that temple. He's like pushing people out. He's causing a ruckus. Why? Because they had made the temple transactional. Not a present, not not, not a place where you come and meet the holy God of the universe. And sometimes if we're really honest, that's what this, it's hard to call this a church because it's a gym. But, But the rhythm of attending a weekly gathering, sometimes for us, it is just so much ritual and tradition that we've not even thought once that we're going to come and we're going to sit under teaching of God's word and we're going to encounter the holy God of the Bible. Church, we got to be a house of prayer. Church is not just worship and a sermon. It's not just events and content providers. No, at its best, Paul says in Ephesians, It's the manifest wisdom of God to the watching world, that we are a spiritual family encouraging one another and praying for one another and carrying burdens. God, forgive us that we have made your house more about preaching or more about singing or more about serving or more about doing or even more about giving than it is about praying. This is first and foremost to be an outpost of prayer, a spiritual family linking arms together and literally inviting the supernatural to leave heaven and to be made manifest on the earth. That's what prayer is. He goes on. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, it's not the oil that saves, it's the Lord that would save or restore. And the prayer of faith will save the one that was sick and the Lord will raise him up. This this word save is the word restore and the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And the Lord will restore him, and the Lord will strengthen him or her. And if he's committed sins, his sins will be forgiven. Now, again, this verse has been so overly abused. This does not in any way guarantee that if you have enough faith and you follow the technique of the oil in the right place and the right prayer of a righteous man, that you're guaranteed that you're going to heal the person. No, that's, 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 that's not said here. 
A lot of people say, if I just have enough faith when I pray, then I'll be healed, then the mountain will move. Well, in this context, it's not even the individual praying. It's the leaders of the church praying. And restoration, like we saw last week, doesn't always mean that your suffering will be removed. Sometimes God removes the suffering, and we pray that he does. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he just strengthens the one that's walking through the suffering. The genuine prayer of faith is not just confidence in God's ability, his omnipotence. It's also confident in his omniscience or his ultimate wisdom. To say it another way, when I pray with faith, I'm acknowledging to God that not only is he powerful enough to do it, that he's wise enough to know when and wise enough to know if and wise enough to know how. So if you're suffering this morning and you pray, Absolutely, it's a great prayer to say, God, would you remove this difficulty from me? But if he doesn't move, it doesn't mean that he's not listening. Sometimes he's just trying to strengthen you in the midst of the suffering. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, not everyone who is suffering has committed sins, and not everyone who is sick has committed sins, or that the sickness is a result of their sins. Now, sometimes it is. This is what Paul told the church at Corinth. You guys are sick because you're abusing communion. And they didn't have communion like we have of, you know, stale bread and and Welch's grape juice. Their communion was like communion. It It was loaves and loaves of bread. And lots and lots of drink. And the rich people who got off work at noon or didn't work at all, living off those hedge funds, they would come in early and they would eat all the bread and drink all the drink. And then the day laborers who would work all day until dark, they would drift in at 6 or 7 p.m. All the food would be gone. The communion was gone. And they started getting sick because of it. And this is what Paul says. One of the reasons that you are weak or sick is because you've got sin in your life, he tells the church of Corinth. So sickness isn't always caused by sin, but it could be. So if you got a sniffle this morning, it should be a great reason to ask the Lord, Lord, what's going on here? Is my heart right with you? And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Friends, we serve a God that restores He's a God of restoration. We could look at a thousand stories through God's word today where God stepped in and brought restoration. This is just what he does. In nearly every miracle that Jesus did, this recorded in the Gospels is him stepping in and restoring something. Beautiful. So how do we respond to this, church? It's one word and I'll let you guess it. You can guess it, like, pray. No help up here, man. There's none. How do we respond? We live a life of prayer. Hearts of prayer and houses of prayer and homes of prayer. Listen, prayerless 
prayerlessness is not spiritual. Some people who know a lot of theology would would say, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God, Luke, and I know it's all going to happen the way that God wants. He tells us in Psalms that the Lord's going to do what he pleases, so I'm just going to stay quiet over here. And you use that theological argument to justify your passivity and laziness. When Jesus tells us to pray, and God invites us to pray and made a way for us to pray, and James exhorts us to pray, and Paul begs us to pray, would, would you just pray? God is sovereign, and I affirm that, but he uses people to accomplish his will all the time. We're going to see that here in a second with Elijah. So he saved your neighbor, but he does it through prayer and you sharing the gospel with your neighbor. And so he heals your daughter through prayer and you caring for her. It's all through prayer. So since God uses prayer as the means that he opens up the heavens and sends down good gifts to his kids, for the love of God, could we learn to pray? Because God uses prayer to change things. Homes of prayer, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Confess your sin, acknowledge the sin that may be created or caused the weariness. Now, you just don't do this willy-nilly. You don't just acknowledge your sin and confess your deepest, darkest secrets to everybody in this room. No, acknowledge the sin, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. You confess to the appropriate other. I'll admit there are some people that you just can't tell your sin to. They're going to use it against you. They might share it as prayer requests to the, on Facebook, whatever it might be. So who? Who do, we, who do we share with? Who do we open up to the very depths of our hearts, to the things that we really, who, who do we do that? The, the, the verse tells us. Secrets in the verse. You only confess to the people who are going to pray for you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You know, there's those people who say all the time, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. And then there's those people even in this room who you know will pray for you. They will rend the heavens for you. There's a level, even within the broader spiritual family, a group of guys or gals that you go a step deeper with. Now, we typically at our church do this in missional communities or in DGs, discipleship groups, but the, the structure is not the point. The point is you need to find your four. You need to find your six. You need to find your two. Two or three or four or five, six people that you trust, that will pray for you, that will hold you accountable, that will lift you up. Tony Evans says about this verse, if they ain't a prayer, I ain't a sharer. I love that. The phrase here, confess your sins, the Greek tense of sin is past action with present problems. It means habitual sin. You know this as well as me. Sometimes sin becomes a stronghold. Sometimes you've done it so long. It's it's actual 
physical tendency to it that it's hard to stop. It's so many layers and, and webs of deceits. And you, don't, you, don't, you can't see your way to even get out of this maze. And so you need someone outside of it that'll hold on to the hand of God in heaven and hold on to your hand. When patterns of sin seems to have a grip around your throat, you need help to remove them from your life or accountability even to abstain from them in the future. This is what he's talking about. This is how we confess these things to one another. And we pray for one another that they would be healed. This should happen primarily in a small spiritual family where we pray for each other and we labor for each other in prayer. This is, DG's is not just like us in some strategy room saying, hey, let's, let's try to figure out a way that we can consume more time of people's lives. No, we want to see you walk in freedom. This is one of the ways you do it. To not have any secrets. We should do that in these groups. Our very homes should be places of prayer. Our kids should know what our prayers sound like. Our kids should have memories of waking up to see mom and dad laboring in prayer for them and going to bed, mom and dad laboring in prayer for them. I fall so far short of this image, I promise you. Many of us are more committed to so many other things that our kids do well in school, our kids do well in sports, or our kids have the right popular group of friends. We want our kids to succeed so bad, but they, we've never taught them how to pray. Because if we're real honest, because we don't pray. We are Christians who quit breathing. The first thought that comes in our kids' head when problems happen, when struggles happen, when pain happens, when grief happens, when anxiety happens, when difficulty happens, when, 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 when you're overwhelmed, the first thing they should think is my dad, just hearing my dad's voice, we should pray about it. We should pray. I've told you the story. I used to go to my dad with my problems all the time, and he would ask me the first question. He would say, what does the Bible say about that? And the second question he would say, have you prayed about it? He would invite me to pray, especially in his latter years. He was just so tender to praying for these things. Remember, I've told this story before. Ashley and I were struggling to get pregnant, and we had tried for several years, and we just couldn't, and we were so discouraged and so defeated, and we were seeing all the specialists, and we were trying to save money for whatever procedures we were having to do, and it just, you know, month after month, it's just so discouraging. And had an opportunity to preach one night it's up the road at a church. And my dad came and listened. He wanted to take us to El Chico's afterwards, which has just got Jesus all over, right? The Flottas with sour cream sauce at El Chico's. Hello. And Ashley and I sat in the back of that little red Highlander my dad drove, my mom and dad in the front. He said, you did a good job on your sermon today which he always told me I did a good job I could never get real honest feedback from him 
I said, okay, well, let's go inside. He said, before we go, I want to pray. And my dad began to call heaven down on that little Highlander. That Asher would be able to get pregnant. It's one of those moments you don't forget. You know, there's the praying. Did you pray for your food? And you don't even, you, your minds and hearts aren't even there because you're just ready to eat the food while it's hot. This is a different kind of prayer. I learned how to pray from watching my mom and dad pray. They prayed with just incredible faith. I told you, my dad would pull over in <laughs> bars and strip club parking lots all over New Orleans. He would just pull in. He said, let's just pray that God will close this thing. Let's pray next level. Let's pray this will become a church. Wouldn't this be a great church right here? Friends, let's pray about it. My sister Lydia was going through some anxiety after Audrey was born. Kai was born. She couldn't sleep real well at nighttime. My dad would call and say, hey, Luke, drop what you're doing. You pray for your sister. And I put that thing on speakerphone, and we just go to pray it. We prepared our kids academically for college. Many of us haven't taught them how to pray. And they don't pray by learning technique. They pray by knowing who the Father is and that he can move and that he opens up heaven sometimes and changes the earth. The prayer of a righteous person, the text says, has great power as it's working. This fervent prayer, this energized prayer, the Bible would call it travailing prayer. Again, not the kind of prayer you pray over your food when you don't even care if God's listening. If you take me out to eat, it's a quick prayer before food. We don't pray for our missionaries then. We pray for them later. We don't pray for our mission partners. This is not that kind of prayer. This is, this is an energized, focused prayer. This is a God-centered prayer. And it must be prayed by a righteous man or woman, it says, the prayer of a righteous person. The fervent prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And this is not a perfect person. It didn't say perfect. It says righteous man or woman. This is a person that's living with a commitment to please God. They're not perfect by, by any means, but they're a man or woman committed to pleasing God. This is travailing prayer. God answered that prayer. We did get pregnant. We had a few miscarriages. We did. We got pregnant. Ashley was pregnant with Claire and we were a couple months into the process and I remember we're living in Dallas remember Ashley comes into the kitchen and I'm working on dinner I think and she says hey I 
just went to the bathroom. I see some blood. I think we may have lost her. And Ashley and I both hit our knees in that kitchen. Travailing prayer. God, you got to show up. We can't, can't do this again. I remember getting a report from Ellie. We went to the doctor and had the ultrasound. They said, listen, Ellie's not going to be normal. And he was right about that. But <laughs> There's some complications, and we don't know if it's downs or whatever it is. It's not going to be a normal delivery. She'd go wait for the doctor, and we went and waited, and we made that doctor's office a place of travailing prayer. I remember with Hudson, Hudson was born. Everything seemed to be great. We didn't have the scare until he was a few weeks old. He was taking a nap and he had rolled over onto his face and he had thrown up and he wasn't breathing. It's been 30 minutes probably since I checked on him. Ashley was away. I went in there and he was completely blue. And Ashley walked in the door. At the very same time that I found him, I said, hey, something's wrong. Hudson's not breathing. So we laid him on the little floor in our front room, and we began with travailing prayer. The prayer of a, the fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. Friends, we should be a praying people. We should be a singing people. We should be a confessing people. We should be a people of great faith. Jesus started his ministry with 40 days in the wilderness praying. He ended it in the garden, a night of intense prayer. And James ends his thought with this reference to Elijah as an illustration of the phrase, the effective prayer of a righteous man should accomplish much. Look at this in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. I said fervent prayer that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again in verse 18, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I kind of wish James would have given us a little bit more of a softball here. He didn't have to go with Elijah. Couldn't he have gone with Joseph, we pray. Joseph was a normal man, and he prayed in prison, and God sustained him. And then when he got out, everything was fine. No, no, this is a guy who's changing weather patterns. Flip over if you can. I think we've got time. First Kings 18. I want to look at this story real quickly. This is so good. I, we're almost done. First Kings 18. This is the story. Now, in chapter 17, in verse 1, God's already told Elisha that it's not going to rain. This is amazing. If you can go read 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, this, this is one of the most, these three chapters will bolster your faith. It's amazing. Look in verse 41 with me, 1 Kings 18. And Elisha said to Ahab, it hadn't, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. Can you imagine the dryness? And it says it didn't rain on the earth, not like in the desert, like there was no rain on the earth 
There was no next country to go to that had a little better weather pattern than you did that you'd go get food. It didn't rain on the earth. Can you imagine? There's no food, the extreme famine. There's no water. Everyone's dying of hunger and thirst. This is the situation. And oh, by the way, God's taking care of your servant Elijah. There's some foods. There's some ravens that are actually bringing him happy meals every day in the morning and the evening. So this is how intense it's been. And then God tells Elisha in chapter 18, verse 1, that it's, I'm about to send the rain. And Elisha said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, because of course they've been storing their food, saving it, but now it's about to rain, so you're not going to have to ration your food anymore. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elisha went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself to the, to, down to, on the earth. Would you see his physical posture? And he put his face between his knees. First couple of things I want you to see, we're going to get back to this text, was Elisha didn't come up with the idea that it wasn't going to rain, it was going to rain. That wasn't his plan. That was God's plan. And God told Elisha, hey, I'm going to ask you to pray for not to rain, and it's not going to rain. And Elisha prayed. He even told Ahab, I'm going to pray it's not going to rain. And thus saith the Lord, it's not going to rain. And then secondly, in chapter 18, verse 1, God says, hey, I'm about to send the rain. And Elisha, even though it's God's will to send the rain, Elisha's the one that partners with God to bring the rain. This is how God works. This is what's so confusing. I don't understand this sometimes. Why does God limit his supernatural power at work around us for the lostness of your neighbor based upon you praying and witnessing to them? That's just how God works sometimes. He limits his supernatural power on the earth, his kingdom coming to the earth based upon your prayers. Which tells you that we've got to pray according to the word of God. Elijah wasn't just praying willy-nilly out there. He was praying the very words of God. God told him it's not going to rain. Elijah prayed it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain. God said, hey, I'm about to send rain. I need you to go pray. It's going to rain. Elijah partners with God, and God sends the rain. So when you're struggling, you can go pray God's words back to him in Psalms 42. Or if you're in a season of repentance, you can go pray Psalms 51 back to the Lord. You can, you can partner with God through the word of God by praying his words back to him. If you're afraid, you can go read Psalms 34. If you feel distant from God, even as Reynolds said this morning, you, you, can, you can get in the word of God and pray the words back to him. This is what we see Elisha doing. We pray, this is why we've got to pray with our Bibles open. Second, we see this picture of this travailing prayer in verse 42. He bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. Not a very comfortable position. This is what earnest praying looks like. See, what you don't know and what these early readers would have immediately caught on to was this was the position that a woman gave birth in. They didn't have OBs and stirrups. You would lean against something firm. And you would bend down and put that face between your knees and you would push and push and push until a new life came. And Elijah assumes this same, this very same position to pray and to pray 
and to pray until God released the rain. Isn't that amazing? And Elijah prayed with faith. Man, I love this. Look at this. Keep going. This is such a great text. In verse 43, Elisha's there. He's got that position. He's earnestly praying. It's travailing prayer. And he said to his servant, verse 43, go up now and look towards the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing there. And he said, go again. And so they keep this thing going seven times. He comes back, nothing there. Elisha says, go back and look. He comes back, nothing there. Go back seven times. And the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud. Like a man's hand rising from the sea. You know how small that cloud would have been like, like a man's hand. Off in the distance, he sees this little thing. He's rubbing his eyes. Is that a mosquito? What is that? Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. There's about to be such a torrent of rain that you're not going to be able to get off this mountain unless you start now. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. I've never noticed this until yesterday. I was rereading this text again and again, and this stood out to me. Look, did you, did you see what it says in verse 41? Elisha said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain. That Elisha heard the rain before he saw the rain. And man, this is the posture of faith. Sometimes you hear things from God, you read them in the word, you, you hear what God's saying before you actually be able, can be able to see it or, or touch it. God was always trying to get, teach his people this. You gotta go, you gotta go walk around the, you gotta go walk around the walls seven times. You gotta go, you gotta go uh, baptize yourself in the Jordan multiple uh, over and over. Very rarely does God show you the whole picture. He just he just gives you a little vision of it, a little sound of it. And then look at this last passage. I just love this. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elisha. And he gathered up his garment, which had been a long cloak, tied it around his his waist. And he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is amazing because Elisha is in a chariot and a horse. And he got a head start. This is like the ultimate cross-country passage we should put this on the cross-country shirts right elijah tied up his cloak and outruns ahab on the horse isn't that amazing point james is making is quite clear if elijah was a man like you and me he was no super apostle he had doubts and difficulty and suffering and sin And if even Elisha could pray and stop the rain and then pray and cause the rain, then you and I should also have confidence when we pray. Let me close here.
What are you praying for, church? Just in your heart, what are you really praying for? If God granted your answer to all the prayers you prayed last week, how many people would be in heaven today? What problems would be solved? What relationships would be reconciled? What addictions would be broken? I think most of us go through three stages in praying. The first, as we grow in maturity, is just the request. Remember when you came to faith? You just had the faith that God would just do these incredible things, and he did them, and he forgave you of your sin, and he gave you peace and joy, and it was just like, it was amazing. And that's what we pray, and we should still pray that. Even James says, you don't have because you don't ask, so ask. But our relationship with God is just not simply just based on, solely based on God answering our prayers. This is what Jesus says after he fed the 15, 20,000 people that were there. And he went to the other side and they met him over there. Jesus says, you don't want me. You just want what I can do for you. It's the first phase is just praying for the stuff. And please, God wants you to pray. He invites you to pray. He exhorts you to pray. Ask him for things. Ask him for big things. But the, the second stage is not just based on the request. It's based on your relationship. Like, I'm going to pray and ask big requests, but if God answers them or he doesn't, I'm not here for the stuff. I'm here for him. It's the relationship. This is what Paul prays for the church of Ephesus, that they would know the fullness of God, that they would know the love of God and how high and deep and wide it is. Prayers of relationship. Where, where we don't ask what if, but we ask who is. You've been paralyzed with the what ifs. But instead of asking the what ifs, you ask, who is? Who is this Heavenly Father that loves me? Jesus would talk about himself as the bride, that the church would be the bride of Christ. He uses this metaphor of this most intimate relationship in the world of father to son and then. Husband to bride. You know, I, I love my wife. But if I went on a date with her and all I did for an hour and a half was ask her for stuff. Hey, when you, when you fold my clothes, can you make sure you get the socks matched up, please? That's so annoying. And when you fold my underwear, no, you know, fold it right. You know, can we change the way? We, if all I did was ask her for stuff, that would be a really bad date for me. And I'd be sleeping on the couch for a couple days. And this is sometimes how we treat the Father. That he's just this magic genie in the sky pumping out all these things for us. No, God wants to know us in relationship. This is why the psalmist can say, better is one day in your courts, Lord, than a thousand days elsewhere. Not because he's like working a, a claw game up there and getting stuffed animals. It's not about the stuff. It's because God's there. And those Christians brave enough to continue walking with God enter this third phase. It's the prayer of relinquishment. This is the prayer we see Jesus praying in the garden. 
Lord, not, not my will. If you're willing, would you do this? But you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. Invite the band up here. Maybe you'd think about your prayer life. Is it mostly just the request? Is it one of relationship? Or is it even one of relinquishment? Where you say, God, my life for your will. I'm going to give you a few moments right there. If you just bow your head right where you're at. And I really want some time for you just to talk to God. We're going to have communion in a minute. Communion is this beautiful sign of our relationship with the Father. This whole thing, we pray in the name of Jesus because of all that he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. So this is why we pray. And we need a physical reminder of that in communion. We're going to have that in a minute. But before we get there, could you just take a few minutes and just talk to God? Maybe there's some really big things you need to ask him. Maybe some of you are suffering. You need to pray. Some of you are cheerful. In a minute, we're going to sing, and maybe you would sing with a new fervor. The excellencies of God, because you're cheerful, because you're having a, you're having a good season. God's God's done some incredible things. Some of you are weary, you're sick, and you just don't even have the strength to pray anymore. You prayed all the prayers and cried all the tears. And we're going to have our prayer team in the back, and I'm sure people even sitting next to you. We'll have the altar open up here. Why don't you just come pray? Ask one of them to pray. You don't even have to tell, you don't have to tell them all the things. You could just tell them your name. You don't even have to tell them your name, but you could just say, would you pray for me? Pray that I would have strength or wisdom or that I would hear the voice of God. Would you just pray for me? Maybe it's not praying for you. You're praying for someone else. Maybe you've been travailing in prayer for a lost son or daughter a lost family member, someone you care for, a friend who's not part of the faith, and you would just pray. Grab someone's hand and say, would you, would you pray w- with me for Sarah or for Mark? Would, would, you, would, you, would you pray with me? Maybe there's a financial need that is so big you have no idea how God's going to meet that need. And you're so scared and weary, even in the praying, you just need someone to put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Church, if we cannot be a house of prayer, what are we? Maybe some of you in this room, you're not even part of God's family. You have no idea what this access looks like. Today's a day that you would step across the line of faith, trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Hmm. Let me pray for us. And then I just want us to spend some time in prayer. Our communion servers will be here. You can take communion when, when you're ready. But let's do some real business with God for a minute. Some of you might need to just grab your family. It's been a long time since you prayed with your family. You just need to pray. God, we love you. Lord, we give this moment to you. Lord, we ask that you would open up the heavens and send answers to these prayers that we're praying. 
prayers for deliverance and prayers for salvation and prayers for healing. Prayers for addictions to be broken and overcome. Prayers for restoration in marriages, restoration in relationship with parents. Prayers for a softer heart. Prayers for more faith. Prayers of forgiveness where we've harbored bitterness in our hearts towards someone else. Lord, would you do what only you can do in our hearts? In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Prayer team's in the back. The band's going to play. You just move as God prompts your heart. The altar's open if you want to pray here. You might want to just write it on your card what you're praying for. The staff will pray for you tomorrow. Whatever it is, listen to the prompting of the Spirit this morning and risk obeying what He's leading you to do. Communion servers are at their stations when you're ready for that.